So, David Brad, I got a question for you, uh, and I, this has been a long time troubling thing for me, and I need answers. I need answers to this. So, He-Man was uh, it's, the t- official title was He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. But my question, the, the thing I want to put to both of you, <laughs> was he himself not a master of the universe? Why is it He-Man and the Masters of the Universe? Is he not a charter member of the Masters of the Universe? Well, I mean, is the president a member of the government? I mean, you would say the president and the cabinet, right? Is, it, is the president a member of the cabinet? Sure, but uh, I mean, they're claiming that the masters of the universe are, you know, the big, the big cheeses, the head honchos, the the hoopty doops, whatever they are. Uh, how would He Man be separated from it? You're saying that he is a slightly higher executive above the sort of uh, m- uh, board of chairmen? Is that what it is? I, well, I mean, he gets top billing, right? So presumably, he is. Uh he deserves to be called out independently, whereas the masters are referred to in the aggregate. And and it's like Kylo Ren and the Knights of Ren. It's like, <laughs> uh, they're just there to kind of give him, like, there's a sense of that there's more and it's important, but we don't ever need to meet them or they have no relevance. I think you're missing the bigger question here, and that is this. I, I get that He-Man is a master of the universe. But after He-Man, which one of those dopes is also a master of the universe? Are we are we telling me that Ram Man was a master of the universe? <laughs> well, I'll tell you this right now. Orko sure as shit wasn't a master of the universe. <laughs> I mean, I mean, my guess is that uh, there's a bunch of other people that have other series, and it's like we've never seen their their other series because they're off in some other part of the planet and it's like right. Jim and the Masters of the Universe has his own adventures and it's like <laughs> He-Man is like well this is my show so I'm going to call myself out and Jim can have his own show and Bob can have his own show and Ginny's can have her own show and we can all just be the Masters and 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 but we have our own separate little well, crews David, David, hold on. So this presupposes that at some point, if they call a quorum of the Masters of the Universe, like they're like, all right, we got we got ten of us in a room. Now yep. Janice is like, hold on a second, He Man. I personally am Janice in the Masters of the Universe, <laughs> right? And and well, uh, this is you know what this is. This is every Marvel movie where it's like, wait a minute. Iron Man, you're fighting the thing. Why don't you call Captain Marvel? Oh, well, she's not in this movie. So. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, I love that. I love the fact, though, that Ram Man was the one you went with, Brad, of all of them. Because you had you had just a panoply of choices. You could have got Manny Faces. Uh, uh, I don't even. I I literally ran out of names right there. There's a thousand of them. I ran out of faces. You could have gone man at arms. You could have gone Tila. You could have gone with any. We could have gone with Stratos. He was a good one. I was just trying to come up with some names, and I came up with Thundercats. I came up with Tiger and Snark. <laughs> you came up with Panthera, did you? Panthera. Who's, you know, which one is part of Voltron? <laughs> <laughs> That's the. <laughs> Whoever it is that that was Craig who always said, "And I'll form the head." <laughs> What if what if the other masters of the universe are those other shows? Like She-Ra is a master of the universe, and um, I don't know the main Thundercat guy. Thundercat is a master Lion-O. of the universe, and, and Lionel. Lion-O. How dare you? I wasn't can- allowed to watch any of these shows. So oh, is that right? All I know is the toys that my wife has. Well, wait, wait. Now hold on a second. Hold just one second here. Now, well, She-Ra was not listed as one of the masters of the universe. She was She-Ra. 
the Princess of Power or something. Princess Wasn't that the power? Title? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, He Man is Prince Adam, right? I know that much. So if he's yeah, a prince like, and she's a princess, they're both kind of in the in the monarchy of their respective fiefdoms. Yeah, but this is like the creeping hand of the patriarchy that you don't. You, she's not <laughs> clearly stated as being one of the masters of the universe. Well, maybe she is like, you know, what? I don't need the masters to be second billing on my show. I am enough. I am sufficient. You don't get to ride my coattails. You're you're saying like she's split up. She's like, listen, I'm Gladys Knight. I don't need the pips anymore. I am <laughs> off exactly on my right. own. Yeah, it's like it's Beyonce, right? It's, it's, she's not Beyonce of you know TLC. Uh, is that the group? I couldn't I'm remember sorry. myself. So I couldn't remember what Beyonce came it's, from. That's amazing. It's Beyonce, Tigra, and 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 the Red Ranger, and, and Orko. Yeah, and they make up Salt and Pepper. Yeah, throw Mecca Neck in there, and you've got a set. Mechanic. Brad is now Googling. <laughs> this is what's happening. Brad has started Googling. Brad's got the Wikipedia page open. <laughs> you, you guys can laugh all you want. Brad's like, I'm oh, really impressive with this guy. None of you have ever heard of. <laughs> oh, yeah, Brad. Well, I've got the Hungarian version open here, and you, you're freaking all about Cesar. <laughs> Cesar! Cesar, the former chef that now is just, uh, he's just a master of the universe. Uh, all right. Well, listen, on that note, I'm going to say hello, everybody, and welcome to Comic Lab, the show about making comics and making a living from comics. I'm Brad Geiger, editor of webcomics.com and cartoonist of Evil Inc. And I'm his friend Dave Kellett, cartoonist of Drive and Sheldon and co-director of Stripped. And this week's Hour of Comics Advice is made possible by your support at patreon.com slash comic lab. So Dave and other Dave. Hey. Let's <laughs> let's talk <laughs> comics. Let's talk comics. Dave, why don't you introduce our guest over there? I'd be happy to, Brad. Dave Kellett is Oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I would actually love to hear what that introduction is. Go ahead. Give me a D- D- Dave Kellett is the mayor pro tem of Hawthorne, California. Ever since the previous mayor stepped down in disgrace, he's he's dedicated to getting the city's budget back on track and he's happy to report that they've renegotiated the city's outstanding bond obligations and we are well on track for a fiscal year. It's fully in the black for the first time in the 21st century. Oh, my God. That was beautiful. <laughs> they call him Mayor Pothole because there's not a pothole left in the cities and Dave has started over. They call him Mayor Pothole because calling him Mayor Potbelly made him cry. <laughs> well, anyway, let me give a formal introduction to our guest, Brad, before we go a yes, second further. Yes. Uh, Dave Malky, our dear friend, uh, hailing also from Los Angeles. Uh, you know him as the longtime wonderful creator of Wonder. Oh, this is what I accidentally did there. Wonderful creator of Wondermark.com. Uh, Wondermark's been running now, Dave, for what is it? Uh, probably 15 years, 14 years? Yeah, 16 years. 16 years. I was so close as a friend, Brad. I almost got it. Yeah, and didn't give me quite enough credit, but that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Dave Kellett, always undershooting. And then, of course, you know him from other projects like Machina Death, and you can find him at patreon.com slash Malky. Dave Malky, thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, gentlemen, it's my pleasure. I have, I'm, I'm, I'm honored and, 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 and grateful to be here, and I'm excited to talk about comics. Brad, Dave and I spent uh, a good half a week up in Alaska together, and let me tell you, the good times were rolling, and next year we're going to get Brad Geiger up there, Dave. Uh, that's the... that's the. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, you you should come up, Dave. Uh, uh, Brad, you should... I mean, you love... Uh, if I know anything about Brad Geiger, it's I know that he loves glaciers. And so he's going to get a chance to see one of the last ones before they all vanish. Glaciers and ravens. I know, Brad, big on ravens. Can't get enough of them. That's right. 
being being able to be compared to a glacier is the only way I could ever be considered to be fast. So I'm I'm always on the lookout for any glacier I can be compared to. <laughs> I thought you were going to say cool, but uh... but da- David, both of them have a slow, constant leaking, though. That's also a problem. <laughs> um, and, and both of them, as, as as the world gets gets uh, gets uh, advanced in its 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 industrial uh, wasteland, uh, both of them just start shrinking and shrinking yeah, and shrinking. Yeah, I was going to say. In, the the word you're looking for is both are receding. How about that? <laughs> well, now that we've abused Brad yeah, for a minute, well. uh, Dave, let's jump in. Uh, I want to before we get into a bunch of reader questions. I wanted to ask Dave Melky a specific question that I've always been fascinated about. Yeah. Sure. Um, so we've all heard the idea that uh, the soul of brevity is wit, or the soul <laughs> that brevity is the soul of wit. And I wanted to ask you, Dave, about your specific writing style because there's a philosophical choice in that you use uh, specifically beautiful, florid um, uh, dancing language that is longer than normal. And I wanted you to talk about that for a minute. What's your philosophy behind your writing style and how you approach dialogue specifically? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a couple things that I think are, are, are happening at once. And if you don't, if the re- listener isn't familiar with Wondermark, um, it's made using found art. And so um, I am taking illustrations out of old books and I'm sort of collaging them together and turning them into, into a comic strip. And in some cases, I'm redrawing some elements of them, like expressions or you know gestures to sort of make it fit. Um, but I'm usually trying to find an illustration that matches the style or the the narrative that's, that's being presented in the strip. And, um, but what that means is that I don't have the flexibility that a typical cartoonist might have with respect to like letting some of the, the, the narrative be conveyed with body language. Oh, right. The nuance of a, of a specific look or gesture or yeah. Right. And, and so, and so, um, I, I guess kind of as an unconscious reaction to that, I have, um, I've come around to this style of just trying to use language, um, just trying to use the text of the dialogue um, to establish the tone and and the, the sorts of things that you might be able to get across with with um, a, a facial expression or, or, or something else. Um, so I think that's part of it is just trying to let that do more heavy lifting in terms of establishing the cadence and the tone of, of uh, what's happening in the strip. Right. But I mean, that's not all of it because I also have plenty of comics that are not incredibly wordy, and and yet I I tend to uh, gravitate toward, as you mentioned, Dave, um, just kind of filling the panels with with words, and and I, I say that I mean to my own detriment because I do think it makes some of the comics a little bit uh, more imposing at first glance to like slog through, and I don't think if it were a twenty panel comic. It would feel very busy, but because it's a six-panel comic, it, the same amount of words crammed into a smaller space ends up feeling a little right, bit busy, right, right. Yeah. Um, which I acknowledge. Um, but I think also, I'm just because it's a gag strip that does not typically have continuity. I'm not exploring a concept in five installments over the course of a week or, or whatever, or I'm not um, uh, following a storyline over the course of, of weeks and months. Typically speaking, I want to get everything I want to say about this topic out. Right, right. And so every, you know, if, I, if I've got three thoughts about this, that might be three independent punchlines in the course of a of a storyline. But I'm not going to do three strips about it. I'm just going to have them bounce that back and forth in the course of one strip, and so it ends up being a lot of back and forth. I think that's probably the larger idea. Is it's it's trying to be efficient via density. 
Right. So that you're not uh, because there is there is kind of a, a loss of efficacy if the three ideas, uh, sometimes a loss of efficacy if the three ideas are stretched across three strips. Is that what I'm getting from you? Well, and I think it's yes, I, I think that's true. And I think it also came about because I started doing my comic twice a week in a time when people were often doing web comics three to five times a week. And so I mm-hmm. felt like each individual update had to be a little bit meatier in a sense. And I don't really feel like that's necessarily um, like an actual thing, but just to give you the sense of how sort of how I fell into that, into that habit, I, I got thinking of like, well, if I'm not drawing this comic and I'm only doing two of them a week, each one of them had better be substantive. And so yeah. one way to get to that, I think subconsciously was just by just making sure there was a lot going right, on. Right. And so there's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of lines of dialogue and a lot of my most uh, successful strips are not ones that are extre- extremely wordy because I think more people read the ones that have less <laughs> words in them. Um, so like, listen, I'm not saying this is a, this is a virtue, uh, but by way of explanation, I think that is the reason is that I want each one. Oh, no, to and be, I, hope, I, I wanted to be super clear. This was not coming at it in any form of criticism. I'm just, I, I'm fascinated by your writing style um, and how much, uh, how much of a verbal dance you're able to put into a single strip. And I, I've always admired it because when I try to do it, and maybe it's the detriment of being a hand letterer with Sheldon. Mm-hmm. To me, it just ends up looking like one of the Cerebus's crazier strips, you know, of, of just like <laughs> just words, <laughs> endless words on a page when I do it. But when you do it, uh, and especially with the newer font that you adopted a couple of years ago, uh, it's really clean and works well, I think. Um, but OK, so uh, for the for the broader picture, artistically, and then I'm sorry, Brad, I'm monopolizing and then I'm going to pass it over to Brad. Um, that's okay. Artistically, Run one of the things that I've always been fascinated by looking at Dave's process, and again, so Dave takes um, uh, both uh, etched drawings and I, 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 they're not really woodcut. They're all etched, right? They're all etched drawings. I mean, the the era that I work from is sort of the the tail end of of the woodcut era, and the and the typically it's like a copper plate engraving. So um, I I, w- I usually call them woodcuts and engravings as sort of shorthand. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, but pulling from that era, looking at Dave's files, and I've been lucky enough to look on on his computer once or twice. Oh, I've looked. No, uh, but I've looking on, on his files. It'll be like a, a a bunch of torsos, a bunch of heads, sometimes a bunch of hands, um, individual parts of machines that have been stripped apart. Like it'll be a steam locomotive. Motive, but sometimes you'll have the, the the steam chamber separated from the smokestack, separated from the cow, um, whatever they call it, the cow cutter, whatever that thing's called at the front. Cow the catcher. Cow, catcher. cow, yeah, cutter. cow cutter. cutter, yeah, that's a different, <laughs> that's a very different design. Um, uh, but anyway, he'll, sep- he'll separate those out and, and basically piece together in a super artistic montage way um, uh, this, this entirely new thing. And, but here's the question I wanted to ask you, how frustrating is it to try to, uh, to, to Frankenstein together a hand from a woodcut era with a torso <laughs> from, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, a later era and how, like, what did, what strategies have you devised over the years artistically to make those work together? That's a good point. Um, one of the things that I tried to do very early on was adopt this philosophy that, I want it to look like it could have been original, like the verisimilitude. Like I, mm-hmm. so that way, the styles of the individual characters in the strip talking to one another should feel like they could have been from the same illustration, just in terms of the level right, of detail right, right, right. of them. Because, you know, like because one scan might be a political cartoon, and another one might be a portrait of somebody fr- on a scholarly article, and they're entirely different right. illustrative styles. So one of the things I try and do is within a certain strip to just try and keep things fairly consistent as, as much as possible just so it's not jarring 
Um, and then the other thing is, I would say the majority of the the stuff that I work with now has sort of like it's funneled down into like a canon set of of sources that all live in roughly the same universe, and so um, it's pretty easy to take a hand from one illustration and put it on another one because they're not they're not tremendously dissimilar just in terms of the ones that I've gravitated right. toward using. However. Um, there are occasional, like, if there's a person who's wearing a dark coat, for example, and in the, in the source drawing of like the torso, it's crosshatched. And then I want a, an arm to be reaching out. And so I find another picture of somebody with another dark coat, but in this case, it's single hatched. It's not crosshatched. And then I'll just go through and I'll add like the other direction of hatching just to try and, oh, I hatch. see. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, things like that. Right, right, right. But yeah, but the the one the one thing that I've always admired about you in, in terms of verisimilitude is that ninety nine point nine percent of them look like they were taken from the same drawing. Yet I know you're pulling from vastly different sources. You know, like one will be, I, I don't know, yeah. uh, Saturday Evening Post, uh, when the other one's from Punch, and and they're two completely different artists, completely different eras. And yet somehow your eye now you've developed this critical eye of of making them match. It's amazing, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. F- I think it is largely unconscious of, like you said, just having looked at it for so long. And even now, when I find sources, I'm able to tell this is going to work and this is not, and this is going to. I'm going to find a home for this, and this I'm probably never right. going to end up using. And um, and there are individual strips that feel like everything in this strip is is feels like it's from a slightly earlier era, or everything from this strip feels like it's from a slightly later era. Because um, I've got cartoons in here from 1910, 1915. It's a whole different. Uh, I mean, even forget the illustrative style. It's a whole different fashion sense. Um, But I, I kind of like the idea that I'm creating things that could not have existed. And, and so part of it is like, I'm going to make a helicopter out of, you know, steam engines and, and that's fine. And that's like, that's fun. That's the creative process. But also the idea of like, here's two people who are talking to each other. It looks kind of boring. So I'm just going to look through for like a Napoleon hat and put it on the one guy not for any reason, but just because I want it to have variety. I want it to look a little bit more interesting. And so that that is sort of the, that's like the the icing on the cake of, I think this joke is okay, but then I just want it to, to be something fun to look at. And so I don't always do it, but I'm, I'm always ha- proud and happy when I can take a, a couple extra seconds to be like, how can I make this look a little bit more dynamic and interesting um, so that I do feel like I have an artistic contribution to it as opposed to just ah, this is a scan i found and i'm just gonna right. put some dialogue like in the on. background i one of my favorites yeah. is is when in the background you'll have somebody like riding by on a, either a nonsensical bike or some weird vehicle that shouldn't exist or you know like if it's a street scene that kind of thing uh uh or the, or even in the background i've noticed sometimes if there's a bookshelf or something you've clearly messed with the objects they're not at all what was originally there and it's like <laughs> that's amazing whatever whatever weird object you put on there is always delightful yeah, usually when I have to create a scene like that, then I'll just try and I'll make it interesting to myself. So I think there was one recently where the um, I think it was a police evidence locker and then I don't have a picture of that. So I just have to make that out of pictures of shelves, you know. And so I, I put like I think there's a tuba on there and there's like a grandfather clock and there's like a, just uh, just things to fill the shelves. But the the sort of quiet joke that I'm making is like, you know, in the police evidence locker is, you know, this guy's tuba. <laughs> 
So now, listen, you've been doing this for a long time. Are you running out of source material? In other words, how much time are you spending every week trying to uh, hunt down new engravings and, and trying to find new stuff? Or, or, or is it pretty much you've got a, a bag of tricks and you can make endless uh, combinations from what you've already got? Well, I... Um... I am constantly finding new stuff. And and the, the sort of pattern that that's taken is when I first started doing this, I was like looking up um, books on eBay that were like, like a, like a bound edition of punch or whatever from 1880. Yeah. And the, the spine is broken and the, you know, the cover is falling off. So somebody is just trying to unload it. Like a, the, right. the, the stuff that collectors don't want. And so I'm, I'm, I was buying up this stuff cheap. I actually got somebody to send me the entire decade of the 1880s uh, in punch from uh, in, in like this giant carton from the UK. Wow. And um, and so I was accumulating that kind of stuff actively. And then I would also go to the library. And here at the L.A. Central Library downtown, they have an enormous periodicals collection in the basement. And you can sit there and fill out like a a request form and then you give it to somebody and then you sit there and then about 20 minutes later, someone comes up with a cart and it's got these giant like hardcover books on it that are these bound editions of newspapers and magazines. And then um, at the time uh, when I was doing this a lot, I had a little portable scanner that was just USB powered and I would just sit there and I would just scan page after page. Like you could be there all day, every day. Like you would never run out. Um, So I, I would do that in a very like, active acquisitive sense. And then once I started doing this for a while, people started sending me stuff. Like yeah. I would, I would get somebody emailing me saying, Hey, my mom found this in her attic. She was going to throw it away. <laughs> Do you want this? I was like, yeah, I want that. And so I'll take it. And it's not always something that's useful, but usually there's something, a couple cool Im- images or some, you know, something I, I wouldn't have come across. So yeah. I'm, I've been very, very happy to be thought of. Um, our mutual friend Chris Yates, actually, he was moving out of uh, his house in Boulder a couple of years ago, and he's like, "Hey, I found this giant stack of McCall's magazines from like 1910. Like, do you want them?" I was like, "Yes, of course I want them." <laughs> <laughs> and then so he sent me this giant package. I kid you not, it stayed unopened for like five years because I just didn't ever need them. And then I think it was it was less than a year ago. I was like, "What's in this anyway?" And I just cracked it open and was just like, and I could just spend a day just paging through it, you know, because I'm fascinated by that kind of stuff. Yeah. Now, what what comes first, the idea or the image? In other words, do you look at an image and say, "Oh, I've got a joke for that," or do you have a joke and then you think, "Oh, now I've got to find these images." It rarely happens that I look at an image and it suggests a joke, um, but uh-huh. it does happen, especially at the very beginning. It w- the most common way it worked was I would put some images together just based on kind of how they looked, and then I would figure out what the interaction was. So uh, the, yeah. the way I normally describe it is, what is this man saying to this bear? And it's like, well, <laughs> it, it's almost like an improv scene where all you have to do is start with one line and then you just yes and it from the other character and you can develop a little a little dialogue. And then maybe it resolves into a punchline or maybe it doesn't. But if it doesn't, maybe you've at least figured out what the concept is and then you can sort of rewrite it from that point. So that, right. was, that was the earliest. The earliest version of it was generative in that sense. And then after, after you do this for a while, I think as you gentlemen both know, your brain starts thinking in comics and, you know, especially as an observational strip largely, or as a strip without continuity, I guess I should say, if I'm in the Costco parking lot and then I hear (laughs) a a snatch of conversation, 
I'll just write the next three panels automatically in my head. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, so this is a setup or this is a weird situation. And I'm like, what's the absurd version of this? And then it just sort of springs fully formed to a certain sense. And then I'll, or, or, or the concept of it or some piece of it or whatever. And as we all do, you know, I'll, I'll sort of try and capture that as best I can. And then when it comes time to make an actual strip, Usually what I'll do is I'll look through the, the scripts that I already have or the, the concepts or ideas I already have uh, written down. And then I'll look through my source images and I'm like, who looks like they're saying this? Who looks like they're making the right expression? Does this person yeah. look like they're they're expressing this thought? And if not, you know, does a piece of them look like they are? And maybe they need a different hand to sort of actually do the, you know, do, do the body language. And um, as I've been doing this longer and longer... I don't I don't really have continuity in the strip, but however, I do have individual strips where a person had a very specific point of view, and I've been starting to go back and find that person again and bring them back as a recurring character. So it's like, this is the guy who has bad ideas about movies or whatever, or this is yeah. the guy that always has a pyramid right. scheme that he's working on or whatever. And they don't really have much of a world that they live in, except if you're attentive, you'll be like, hey, that's that same guy. And he had another bad idea <laughs> of the same type, you know. 18 months ago. Oh, and I'll bet you, you've got readers that pick up on that. I mean, I hope I do. <laughs> it's possible that I don't, but I hope I do. <laughs> no, it, always, it doesn't it amaze you. Like, like there's, there's, there's a certain percentage of, uh, of each of our readership. I, I guarantee that, that, that have really uh, amazing eyes for detail and for, and for making those connections uh, constantly, I get, particularly in my Patreon, I'll get somebody pointing out something that I could have never noticed about my own work. <laughs> it's I, like, I, oh yeah, yeah, I guess that's a good point. I guess can I have I, been doing that. Can I give you a contrast, Brad? Can I give you a contrast yeah. to that? So I have one person, and you both probably have this too, that every time I tweet out a comment or a comic, he retweets it. And for the longest time, I thought, wow, what a supportive guy. Just re- He just loves all my comics, just retweeting all my comics. This is great. What a really nice guy. And then I tweeted out a joke the other day that was so demonstrably bad that even I was like, boo, I wish I could bail yeah. out on that. That was a terrible joke. And he retweeted it. And then I kind of went to myself, maybe he just has bad taste. Maybe he's literally just retweeting everything. Like, there, I don't know. I, even I don't want that joke got to exist uh, anymore. And he's retweeting. I think there I are certain know. people that just the way they use Twitter is that they just retweet everything that comes across their timeline. Yeah. Um, not because they have any oh, followers, but maybe. because that's just the way that they experience Twitter for whatever reason. Um, the, there, I do have occasional, not exactly that, but the sorts of things where it's like, you know, I'm never going to interact with this person. Maybe I'll just mute their notifications. And so they can retweet all they want. And I just never have to look at it. <laughs> well so to to follow up on brad's question about uh, the the character first and then the idea or the idea first and then the character i want to ask you about a specific strip that i've always loved of yours and a lot of other people love too and that's the sea lion strip um so i have never actually asked you about this so i'm super curious about the answer how did you land specifically on sea lion was that like a recent scan that you were like i love this face this face is perfect i gotta use sea lion or uh, I've always thought, like, was it because sea lion as an animal name is distinctive enough where it's not like fox or bear or something that it, it worked more perfectly as a singular unit? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the and maybe by the way, we should do a quick background of what that strip is that I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, sure. So the sea lion strip is now, can you believe this? It's almost five years old. Um, wow, good god, wow. All right. And uh, uh it, it's probably the most if somebody has come across a wonder mark, it is, it is likely to be 
you know, that one, or, you know, there's like two or three that, that really have been everywhere. And that's definitely one of them. And it is, um, it's a commentary on the sort of online communication that I think we started to notice more and more during like the Gamergate era. And that Mm -hmm. is somebody who is, who feels that they are owed a debate, uh, on any topic of their own choosing. Um, (laughs) and, and that the notion that somebody posting on Twitter is de facto presenting, um, ideas into the agora of the public consciousness and they should welcome any challengers at, you know, to, to the challenger's own satisfaction. Um, and that is not the way some people use Twitter and it is the way other people use Twitter. And when those two ideals come into conflict, I think you get one person who just thinks that they are trying to be, they're trying to batter somebody down by, uh, incessant, like not even necessarily impolite, but just incessant and un- unsatisfied questioning about topics that are, you know, either easily Googleable or just not something that the, that the other person wants to really discuss. Um, Right. So the tone would be like, well, David, I've been unfailingly polite. Uh, You're, you're refusing to provide any sources for your argument, David Malky. What's the problem here? And it's, it's brilliantly written. And so, um, and so anyway, the, in, in the strip, there's people talking and, and the one person is like, you know, I don't really, I don't mind many, I don't mind most marine mammals, but I, I could do without sea lions. And then the sea lion shows up and says, excuse me, do you have any sources to back this up? And so some, and it goes on and on and on and the sea lion follows them around and then eventually is like following this person into their house and is like, you know, she's trying to eat breakfast and like the sea lion is still there and over and over. And, um, and some people I think who see themselves in the sea lion as being people who are always polite as far as they can tell and they really want to just you know have a debate they're like well of course the sea lion is being polite of course and then this person <laughs> was saying that they didn't like sea lions and of course when you hear bigotry you should stand up to it and demand that the person back up their statement and um so to to, to get back to your question dave um the, the strip went on to it, it kind of took on a life of its own in that people started using the term sea lining to describe this sort of, of interaction, which, I mean, is definitely nothing that I had intended to happen. It's not like I was like, I'm going to coin a phrase that everyone will use, <laughs> right. you know, and so I right. didn't I didn't uh, go into it with any sort of, of, of deliberate intention, certainly. But what I have found is that when you are. When you're doing a strip that does not have recurring characters, that means the only thing that people can can know about any individual character is what they see in that individual strip, right? So mm-hmm. if you are trying to make an observational point about somebody, about culture, about the way that people interact on, on you know, in the world, and you have somebody, um, and then you have another person. Well, everybody is a member of some social group. So whether it's, mm-hmm. oh, well, then it sounds like you're making a point about men just because it's a man. Or it sounds like you're making a point about, you know, right, white people. Right. Or it sounds like you're making a point about old people. Or it sounds like you're making a point about young people. And whenever you use a human being in that, then it, the point gets muddied. Because what you're really talking about is a behavior. And mm-hmm. so right, what, what right. I have found is that if you can use an animal in that circumstance, then now it's, it, it usually makes it so that people don't have a connotation of, of, you know, a dog or a cat in the same way that they do about a human being in terms of the sort of social groups that they belong into, or the sort of point that you're making about what, what, you know, what they do. Right. It it usually is more clear that you're being metaphorical because real dogs or cats don't actually talk. And so the sea lion is intended to be a stand in for a person who displays a certain behavior. And as it turns out, 
this was sort of either unconscious or accidental on my part. Sea lions are extremely annoying animals. <laughs> and, you know, Dave from San Diego, I know, I know you've, you've had that experience as well. And so, um, I think there's a uh, well, certain, can I just say, can I interject one thing? I accidentally got between a mother and her pup one oh, time no. and good God, those things move fast. <laughs> you think that they don't move fast. They are fast movers and they've got serious claws and big teeth and they are scary on sand. So yes, I am familiar with what bastards they are. Yes. And, and there are times they will not hesitate to ask you for your source and times that they'll just bite you. Yeah, that's right. I get, Brad, a recurring theme on this show is how animals and I clearly do not get along, I guess. I, um, and, and so uh, the interesting thing is that because I ended up making it a sea lion, then it sounds like when the lady in the first panel is saying, I don't care for sea lions, it sounds like she's being a racist. It sounds like mm. she's being a sea lion racist because of per- the sea lion can't help being a sea lion. And so when you read it on its face, some people sort of take issue with that and they're like, oh, I'm, of course, a sea lion is the one who's not the racist. But if you are actually have reading comprehension and you <laughs> recognize that it's a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> you mean you, you, you got to bring a certain amount of intelligence to this? No, but I see. I, but I, I appreciate your answer, though, because I was I was very curious on how you landed on sea lion and getting the broad idea that an animal familiar is always a, an interesting choice because it almost becomes, as you said, like the platonic ideal of the idea that you want to encapsulate. Yeah. Like it's not a man doing it. It's not a child doing it. It's not a woman doing it. It's not somebody who uh, has this or that aspect to him. It is literally just the concept in, encased in an animal, which is a really brilliant way to do that. I mean, I mean, and, and I might see something just as a corollary, and this is maybe something that, that the two of you uh, might have insight in, into as well. And that is, a, a, you know, to go back to the idea of doing an observational comic, when you are making jokes about, you know, things that happen or things that people do or weird quirks that people have, every now and then I find myself like coming up with a with a with a concept or a punchline that feels like a cliche because it's like ah this is a stereotypical male behavior or this is a stereotypical female behavior in a way that mm-hmm. I don't want to perpetuate that stereotype because it's right. it's you know however if you flip the genders or you do something else that that breaks the stereotype it lets the behavior be a little bit more independent of that connotation and so you right. can write a strip about a person doing a stereotypically female behavior, but it's a male doing it to a female instead. And and even just that very small change makes it makes it less encumbered by that connotation. Yeah. Well, this this actually um, the, this whole comic strip actually accidentally leads me into a question that a reader had for us. And I'll throw it out to both of you. Um, and so this comes in from uh, Eric Campling, and Eric says, uh, "Hello, Dave and Brad." And in this case, also Dave. So, hello, Dave. I'm the and first Brad. Dave that he mentioned, uh, so it's fine. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Uh, so, I recently started working on several projects that I would like to launch at the end of this year and into next year, looking to monetize. These are theoretically uncontroversial works. I hope broad audiences will enjoy. A few months ago, something in the news cycle sparked an idea for a one-panel editorial cartoon, which I drew more for myself as therapy, but shared with a small group of friends, family on Facebook. That door cracked open, I drew several more, and kept getting new ideas. The thought occurred to me that I could set up a website for these cartoons, share on social media, maybe publish other ways if I collect enough, followed immediately by the thought that if I do that, I might alienate a large potential future audience for my non-controversial future projects. So here's the question. Should I charge forward with sharing my editorials, self-censorship be damned, or be kind to future me and keep these cartoons among friends so future audience building isn't jeopardized by current ham-handed attempts at satire? Brad, should we turn it over to Dave first, or do you want to tackle that yeah, one first? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's let our guest have the first crack at this one. Sure. Well, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, yeah. I... I 
I sympathize with this with this question asker uh, because. God <laughs> damn, David! David, no, no, I'm cutting off your feet. We, you know, no. we were hard on Brad. We were hard on Brad for the first third of this whole hour. So I want to. I'm taking Brad's stat on this one. Um, I uh, in the early days of Wondermark, I felt like. I didn't want to alienate people by doing things that I felt were controversial because I felt like people on all sides of the, of the political aisle have money to spend. And also I know people and have family members, you know, who have a wide variety of political opinions. And I feel like I don't want to, I didn't want to alienate any of those people. Um, but in retrospect, looking back at my work from that era, it still was political, even though I didn't intend it to be quite so overtly. Like, I thought I was making statements that were a little bit more, uh, that, were, that, were, that were uncontroversial. And I don't think, I, you know, I didn't wade into, into deep political waters, but my, my, my internal point of view on the world still bled through. Uh, so I think that's, unless you're doing something that's incredibly anodyne, I think that's inevitable. Um, mm-hmm. I also think that a lot of that stuff doesn't age well, um, either because mm-hmm. our own political views as artists evolve over time and as the culture, you know, goes forward and we sort of reconsider the way that we understand the world, we, we might look back on some of that stuff. Um, and especially if we have, have, um, like Dave, I know with your strip, you with Sheldon, you are deliberately st- working toward an all ages audience, and you're sort of keeping more overt politics out of it. But when I was doing Wondermark, I felt at the age of 24 that like I can be a little bit edgy, and I look back at some of that stuff, and you know, with a lot of embarrassment. And yeah. so I don't know that it ages particularly well, uh, especially when the references to things that you are, are are referring to are lost, you know, to the memory right. hole. Um, so. Uh, but I think the larger point is that it's hard to monetize editorial cartoons. And I, I don't think that this person is trying to necessarily be like a newspaper editorial cartoonist, but I think what they will find is that they might be able to fu- to get a lot of attention from like the more topical the work is, the more attention it generates and the less, uh, uh, that, that attention lasts, um, or the, the, the less that that work can be read later on like if he wants to collect a book two years later it's going to feel very dated it's going to be hard Mm -hmm. to to get a lot of audience around that so you know maybe he would have to look for you know uh whether it's patreon or 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 something else but um i'm I'm sort of putting a lot of stakes in a in a wide a wide net to kind of define the parameters of like the different things he might want to consider because um i think unless he has a lot of ideas that are not political if he has ideas that are political, they're going to be more, they're going to have more valence. They're going to, they're going to have a little bit more um, emotion behind them because we live in these, in these charged times. And he's going to do that at the expense of people who feel differently. And he either has to be okay with that or, or not. And if he, and if he's not okay with limiting his audience, then he shouldn't make those kinds of statements. And if he is okay with, you know, making statements that he might get a little heat for, and also are, is not really going to be able to do much with six months from now, but he thinks that he can do a lot more with it now in terms of building an audience for, for, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot, there's lots of these, these sorts of considerations that intersect, I guess is what I'm getting to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brad, how about you? How would you, how would, what are your first pass thoughts on this? So I'm just going to uh, do a high five retweet all the way through on that. Uh, here's, here's my thoughts on that. Uh, when I was doing, Evil Inc. as a newspaper uh, style syndicated type uh, comic. I put my name on it. 
And when I was doing a journalism comic called Fable, I put my name on it. And when I eventually did an adults-only comic, I had to think about, uh, am I going to put my name on this? And though, and you eventually you eventually signed to Dave Malky, right? That's, how <laughs> that's you, right. That was, that's right. I did. Yeah, right? it's been. I, I, that's why my, my Patreon's doing as well as it is. But a lot of, <laughs> a lot of cancellations, a lot of quick cancellations. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I had to think about. Okay, do I do I? Uh, how do I feel about putting my name on this? And and I think I've talked about that on an earlier show. It was a philosophical uh, re, uh, reasoning. That's like, no, no, no. This is this is good storytelling. This is valid storytelling, and I'm going to put my name on it. There's only one thing that I don't think I'd ever put my name on, and that's a political cartoon. I, I, because we live in such a time where uh, the 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 reaction to from a, it, no matter which side you're on, the reaction from the other side is so violent and and so volatile that I don't. I I, I look at people like Keith Knight, and I look at people who are doing uh, political cartoons with such awe and respect, because I just don't have the intestinal fortitude to, to withstand the kind of vitriol that you uh, stand to get if you make a political statement. I, 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 man, I'm telling you, I just don't have it. There was a couple times in Evil Inc. where I veered into political discourse. I, I took took what I considered to be a pretty, uh, a pretty tame shot, like a Johnny Carson type joke, right? At somebody who I also considered to be at this point, kind of like somebody that people from both sides would kind of agree. Okay. This person was a little bit of a buffoon, right? Right. Somebody who is not uh, as front and center, somebody who had been part of the p- political discussion who now is all but dismissed and, and took a very, very uh, e- easy shot, uh, something that was not very charged at all at somebody who was, uh, uh, you know, kind of considered to be a buffoon. The amount of vitriol that I got in my uh, comment section, this is before I turned comments off, uh, blew my mind. <laughs> something that I considered to be a very, very tame uh, punchline. Uh, was getting the kind of anger that uh, uh, that I just I was not used to to seeing on my on my strip or on my site. I mean, in fairness, Brad, people love Jimmy Carter. He works with Habitat for <laughs> Humanity. <so. laughs> no, it, no, no. I said I said buffoon. I I, <laughs> I think it also depends too on the sort of audience you've cultivated to that point and what their expectations are for the work yes. that they came to read. I, I think you're absolutely right about that. In other words. All of a sudden, they're getting a they're getting a joke there that they weren't expecting, and 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 they reacted strongly to it. But even beyond that, what you said, David, about uh, how this is going to affect this person down the line. Uh, remember, and we said this about a guy. Uh, he he sent in a question uh, to an earlier comic lab talking about doing uh, religious stuff, and I said the same thing there. That's all well and good. You do that. That you, if you feel that do it, but you do have to realize that you are going to have a a pronounced effect on half or a a good section of your audience who differs from that, who feels differently. And uh, if you want to mix that into your overall business plan, it's going to have an effect on it. Uh, If if you were going to do politics, I would would do it the same way that I would suggest this guy does religion and the same way I do adult content. 
do it Patreon only, put it behind a paywall. If somebody wants to see it, they can they can put their money down and see it. You're going to self-select out of a whole lot of people who are going to consider that like a drive-by thing. I would I would put that uh, uh, and and by the way, nobody's going to. Very few people are going to support uh, political commentary on on Patreon unless you're at a at a certain level. Do you feel like putting stuff behind a paywall when he's just starting out is is going to be tough for him to accumulate yeah. accumulate yeah. patrons? Yeah, and and that's and <laughs> that's. But I guess that's me stopping short of dissuading him entirely from touching politics. Uh, it, it, at least if he does this, nobody's going to see it, and it's going to be safe. <laughs> you know at least saying? if he does this, nobody will see his work. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 that that's just one step short of saying don't do it. And and listen, this come hearing myself say these words, I'm a little ashamed of myself, and I'll tell you why. I started out wanting to be a, a political cartoonist. This is even before I wanted to do comic strips, even before I wanted to do uh, comic books. I was reading the editorial comic uh, cartoons in the newspaper, and I really wanted to be those guys, the Pat Oliphants, the, the Doug Marlettes. Uh, I loved what they were doing. Uh, we don't live in those times anymore, and there's just way too much uh, violent anger that that goes around that stuff and i'm telling you i i part of me is like no 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 if you've got a uh, thought you should go out there and put your thought out there you should you should put your ideas out there and stand up for what you think is right and holy moly they i i, I don't know i just might not have the backbone for it anymore it might be that that all I can think of is you know people trying to do retribution, uh, uh, and I've got two kids. I, there's just nothing about politics and talking about politics, especially as a cartoonist, that I find an incredible upside in. Certainly not monetization. Certainly not the the reaction you're going to get from fifty percent of your audience. Uh, I, I I just. I, everything Malky said, I agree with. I, I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't do it at all. At all, okay. Well, so for me, I, um, I want to focus on, on the because I have similar thoughts to both of you, and similar thoughts both about the timeliness of cartoons. Like, no book moves slower on a Barnes and Noble shelf than the white best editorial cartoons <laughs> of 2014 cover. Yep. You know that the white book that yep. the, the white cover that always it has like a, a heavy serif yep. font. Uh, best editorial cartoons of 2017. Nobody's buying editorial cartoons from two years ago. <laughs> I don't even know why they make that book. It's like trying to sell a calendar four years later, you know? Um, yeah. So uh, today's point, I, I personally feel like there's not a lot of money there. Uh, so the upside yeah. is not great, aside from the virtue that you feel for having done an editorial cartoon. Um I feel like I've seen a few people do okay with Patreon with editorial cartoons, somewhere in the 400 to 900 uh, patron range. Um, but I personally, I don't know that you can build a career off editorial cartoons enough to offset the downside that Brad and Dave were both talking about, which is that Charles Schultz line that as soon as you do politics, you kill 50% of your audience, you know? I don't know. Uh, yeah. And um, so for me, uh, I... I also found, and again, this is personal, not th this person's question. Uh, I found when I did editorial cartoons, I used to do two a week for the San Diego Union Tribune, that you're kind of swimming in bile, and I didn't want to do that all the time, you know? 
you kind yeah. of have to focus yeah, on it and point. you and your mind becomes like you have to see the conflict look for the conflict elaborate on the conflict try to try to piss people off about the conflict and uh i know that in the sense that every comic is political in the sense that if i draw a sheldon to dave's point that's very anodyne in a way that's a political statement because i'm kind of going la 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 fingers in the ear la 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 the world is burning but i'm doing a fun <laughs> little comic um but yeah. I've come to peace with the fact that that political statement is, hey, you know what? We all need to laugh, too. We all need to take a moment away from right. our depression or our sadness or our stress of the day. And so my political statement is, hey, have a little bit more joy in the world. But anyway, what I'm getting at is uh, for this person, I see a lot of downsides and not a tremendous amount of upsides. But I like Brad's yeah. idea of if you want to keep doing it, maybe to keep it in the smaller group or keep it in behind a paywall. I think that's a good solution. Uh, any final thoughts, gents? Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I thought I might. I thought I might add one more thing that just um, you know uh, came to mind while you were talking. It sounds like we we are very clear um, and in in agreement that there's not a lot of upside to doing a, a in terms of a career, in terms of monetization, in terms of of, of uh, the the terms of this person's question, which were about monetization in particular, mm -hmm. um, we, we're sort of in agreement that it makes it tough when you are doing a political cartoon. Um, having said all that, I think I would like to, to offer a very slight counter argument, and that is to say, not with respect to monetization, but if this person feels strongly moved by, uh, you know, the the state of the world or whatever, to make statements of a, of a political nature, and clearly they have found that there are some people that want to hear that, and um, you know, and so they, they wonder if they should be doing it. The way I would consider doing it is, um, is this number one, uh, don't make statements that you've already seen in the world. Um, mm -hmm. like only do it if you feel like you have something to add to the conversation. Um, there's a lot of people who will, you know, fave and retweet and, and share and like something that says exactly what they're thinking. Um, and, every now and then somebody needs to articulate it for them to really understand what they're thinking. And so if you feel like you have a new um, observation to add to the world, then I think, you know, those are observations that are worth sharing because they help people clarify their own, their own thoughts. Um, but I wouldn't do it if it's just parroting the thing that's already in the news or the sort of observation that people have already made all over Twitter. Uh, I don't really feel like it's worth, um, like if you're not adding anything to it. The other thing I would say is if you feel, um, like to Dave's point, I think it would be tough to do a political cartoon deliberately because I agree that over time you end up having to seek out the conflicts to discuss and it sort of poisons your mind a little bit. Um, but if you feel like you want to do a comic about whatever and occasionally you have a political point to make, you know, you can use that to inform your storytelling without making it incredibly overt in a way that is um, – disingenuous to the rest of, of your of your work because we all live in the world the political universe and the way people interact with each other is a subset of sort of a larger political question and the way people interact with each other is a subject of comics so you know if you feel like you have thoughts about the world i mean to take the sea lion example you can make it about animals and it can still have a point it doesn't have to to name politicians and, you know, use caricatures of them and so on to be a political right. statement. So I think there are ways to sort of use that to fuel one's own creativity. Um, as long as it's not just like, you can get a lot of cheap attention by bashing the current, you know, person who's being bashed by everybody, but I don't really feel like it gains you anything in terms of your artistic career. So um, you can use it to fuel your creativity in, in sort of more artful ways. Um, if you sort of think about it in, 
on a couple different levels. And maybe that is something that will help this person get their thoughts out into the world in a productive way. That's a great point. Hey, if you're listening while you work, take a minute and stand and stretch. And while you're doing that, Brad and I are going to tell you why you should join us on Patreon. Yeah, because, you know, when you do, you'll get hours and hours of podcasts that we've recorded just for backers. And an exclusive Patreon post that go even deeper on the Comic Lab topics. And access to our exclusive Discord server, a thriving community of professional cartoonists. So you can support the show you love and get tons of actionable resources for your own cartooning. And listen, if you can't swing a pledge this month, no worries. You can still support the show by rating us wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a five-star review and a few kind words. And that, along with mentions on social media, is incredibly helpful. And now, let's talk comics. So listen, guys, would you like to try another $5 question? Let's do it. So here's here's one that I wanted to bounce off of you folks. It, it just came in recently, uh, and it comes from our Patreon backer, Rob Chambers. And he says, I have decided to take a sabbatical from my webcomic, Meat Shield, as I am truly and well burned out creatively. This is the worst it's ever been for me. I've been taking... I I am taking the summer months to mull things over and try to recover that spark that I used to have for making comics. My question is this, what should I be doing or not doing to get that joy back? Wow. So he's he's come to the point where, and this goes back to an early, early uh, Comic Lab episode where we talked about the creative cartoon, or I'm sorry, the creative cocoon, where we were like, "Hey, you know what? It gets to a point where if you are are so bur- you know uh, uh, so burnt out, maybe it's time to take take a step back, take a break, cocoon, and then come back later uh, and and maybe do something else or do something different." Uh, he, Rob's gotten to that point where he says, "Ah, jeez, I'm just I feel burnt out." I need to take a break. That's a really smart thing to do. The, the, the worst thing you can do in a situation like this is keep plugging forward, thinking, well, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. Sometimes you just need to take a little moment for self-care and take a break. So that's what he's doing. Now, what he wants to know is, what should he be doing or not doing to get the creative spark back? I ask you, David Malky. <clears throat> well... Um, yeah, he shouldn't be doing his comic, so he should be taking a break, which is, sounds like the, the, the smart thing for him to do. I think it depends a lot on what his goals are for his work, right? Mm-hmm. So not knowing his comic, I don't know the kind of audience he has. I don't know the kind of thing he's working toward. If he, you know, is planning on doing, you know, books and so on in the future, does he have a Patreon audience that's expecting content from him and paying for the privilege? You know, mm-hmm. um, those sorts of things without knowing any of that, it's hard to, to say. So I'm going to sort of give a couple different short answers that might reflect one end of that spectrum or another for anyone else who might be in a similar situation. I think if nobody, and I say this generously, if nobody is really paying attention, then you have the freedom to do whatever you want. Right. And, you know, if, if you have a readership that's, you know, maybe loyal, but is not small and, or excuse me, but is, is fairly small, then you just need to do whatever you want to do. And, um, you don't really owe anybody anything and you should do the sort of thing that makes you 
enthusiastic. And if it's not comics right now, that's fine. And if it's not making things publicly and sharing them, that's fine because that is a, there's a pressure to doing that, an obligation you put on yourself. Mm. And that can be very wearing, especially if you don't feel like you're getting anything for it. If you don't feel like people are reading it or you're not getting the response you wanted, or you're not making money from it, it can feel very futile. And I think we live in a world where the fact that some web comics are successful makes everyone feel like theirs should be. And so they feel mm-hmm. lacking when it's not. And that's a very damaging thing for somebody that is doing what they think is good work. And there's sort of, just not getting picked up or whatever. And it's fine to just sort of reevaluate your relationship with the work. Um, and maybe, come up with another approach or something different that feels fresh to you and sort of try that or, 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 you know, you don't feel like you have to put things up there for public consumption in a way that makes you feel bad um, if it doesn't hit. So if it's, if there's somebody that is sort of on the lower end of the audience scale, I feel like the most important thing is themselves and their emotional state and their relationship with their own art for the rest of their life. And putting things on the internet can be, it, it doesn't always help and sort of, Keeping that relationship healthy (laughs) with your own art, right? Yeah. So I think, so if that's the case, then I think, I think that's, you know, the answer should be sort of toward that spectrum. However, if this is somebody that has patrons who who are paying money, or if they have work that's being read widely and people are going to, like an audience is going to be lost if they stop producing and that's going to be to the detriment of their career. Can I jump in on there for a yeah, minute? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So so Patreon has something where you can actually take a break, where it'll put a note up on your site saying, uh, this artist is taking a break, and they're not going to charge patrons in the upcoming billing cycle, oh. and the billing will resume on XYZ date. So Really? Yes. So what happens there is you keep your patrons... And they just don't get billed. So it's not creating a situation where there's like, I'm paying good money and you're not giving me anything. Sure, sure. They're, okay. They're, basically, your patrons are taking a break as well. And that way, you're not going to lose them. And they'll be pleasantly surprised at some point when you're back. Uh, and and they're not, and I'm, uh, they get a notification that you're about to set the billing cycle up again. Uh, Patreon actually has a system in place to facilitate this. And I think it's really no, smart. Oh, cool. Well, that's, yeah, that's good to know. And then that might be yeah. something that, that that's relevant. I do think there is a larger question, though, like whether or not, you know, the billing is a factor. If there is an audience of any sort, even if it's a free audience on social media, that has mm-hmm. sort of come to enjoy the work, the, the farther, the more absent you are from that, even if you put your Patreon on hold, or even if you are just not producing work, the more attrition you will see in that audience and the harder it will be to regain um, in the long term. And so I don't know if that's a concern, but if it is, uh, because even someone who's not doing this professionally, if they have a modest audience, they, 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 they still can want to keep them. Right, they they right. can still want to keep those people, you know, on the hook uh, as it were. Well, I think oh. the answer to the question is, um, to create something that is still for an audience, but is not the thing that you have become burned out on. And I think maybe it's not comics, but maybe it's like, I think Akewood, if we remember Akewood, you know, was doing blog posts for its characters for a while. Um, the, the thing that I love about the internet, and as a person that, is, that does a comic that is slightly non-traditional, I have felt this way from the beginning. And that is, there is nothing inherent about comic strips or web comics that is 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 fixed or defined right like a a web comic is an entertainment unit 
and that can be defined as anything. Like people do animations, people do like web comics is sort of a very fuzzy uh, a circle around the larger sphere of entertainment, and you know it lives in the same sort of consumptive pattern as you know lolcats back in the day or whatever of just people are finding funny things on the internet and they're sharing them and they're they're enjoying them, and it doesn't have to be a comic strip to serve that function. So whether it's something in text or whether it's some other different form of art entirely or whether it's just a journal or, you know, sketches, um, I, I would respect this person if they felt like they needed to get away from their work entirely to recover their creative um uh, you know, their creative bank account, as Jake says. And I feel like you, you know, you two are probably going to mention that. And, um, but I feel like if they feel it, if they want to keep an audience uh, paying attention, then they can, they should come up with something else that seems fresh and, and sort of try that for a while. That would be my advice. I am actually going to disagree with that. And I'll tell you why. I, yeah, yeah. So, so here's what happens with so many of these people. They stick with a comic that isn't working because they're afraid of losing the little bit of audience that they've amassed over the amount of time they've been doing this. And that is always, in my opinion, uh, a bad decision. Now, it, because number one, you're gonna number one, you're gonna you're gonna save a certain number of those audience members. Those people are gonna come back to you when you restart, uh, one way or another, you're going to lose some, you're going to gain some. And there are ways that you can keep in touch with them in the interim. You can build a mailing list. You can say, Hey, I'm going to take a break. Uh, sign up for this email list. I'll let you know when I'm, I'm back active again. There's all kinds of ways you can do that, but letting yourself get trapped into this idea that, uh, you're going to lose audience members. If you do this, it assumes that there's a finite number of people who are there to be audience members. And the fact of the matter is, is that on the internet, your potential audience is nearly infinite. Okay. Especially if you look at it over amount of time and your ability to generate those audience members with good work, with work that is not burnt out work, work that's not marking time work, uh, your ability to gain new audience ba members back and replace those ones that you lost is going to be way better when you've refound the joy. So I I take a little bit different attitude towards this than 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 you do. I I say if, if you got to the point where you really aren't feeling it anymore, you can't look at that small audience that you've amassed and say, ah, oh, I've got, I, I, it's taken me this long to get this many people. I, I, I can't uh, start losing them now. If you do good work, you will replace those people. Those, uh, th some of them will come back. Some of them you'll lose. And there's a whole infinite pool for you to fish from to replace any that you've lost. And the only way you're going to replace them is by doing good work that comes from a healthy uh, charged up creative place. Uh, so I, I really, I, I, I caution you against this whole idea. Well, I've got to save the little bit of audience I've built. I, I think the only way to, to gain audience is by doing charged up work. What do you, what do you say to well, that? I, I think you're right. I, um, I can speak from experience here that, uh, uh, if you're, it's a false premise to say like the work has to keep churning out because, if the work is not energized, is not impassioned, is not uh, joy-filled, then it reads as uh, the comic equivalent of styrofoam, you know? So yes, it's there. Yes, it's yeah. being produced, but it's not catching anybody on fire. 
And so you start to feel like General Motors in the early 80s. You're producing weird cars that nobody wants, but yeah, you're producing a lot of them, but nobody really wants this thing, you know? Um, (laughs) So better to, uh, I'm going to bail out of that metaphor, better to, uh, better to, as Brad said, work on the source. And Dave had this at at first, the, your, your mental health, your, your um, spiritual joy, your creative spark. That is the core of everything you produce. And so if you don't treat that with uh, particular kindness, um, then anything that springs from that is going to feel hollow. And so uh, the part that I want to speak of from experience is with Sheldon, I had been doing it for about a decade, and I was really feeling um, a dry spell. And I think both Brad and Dave remember this, where I just didn't feel the spark anymore. Mm -hmm. And so... The way that I, because Sheldon was my income at that point, I didn't have the luxury of just jumping off the the ship and be like, bye. Um, So what I did was I found a project that did spark joy for me, Drive. And to Brad's point is when you are producing work from a joy-filled place, Drive has now far exceeded Sheldon in income. And uh, I truly enjoy doing it. And so when the joy is behind it, when the spark's behind it, the readers do follow and the income does follow. Um... Uh, and it actually helped me realign my relationship with Sheldon so that now I'm producing it two to three times a week uh, rather than five to seven times a week. And I, I find more joy with it because I allow myself to do whatever I want with Sheldon and the people that are cool with yeah. that uh, stick with it. So anyway, that's that's where I'd land on it. Sure, sure. Yeah. And I respect what you, what you were saying. I don't think we're as far apart as, as it might seem. And I think like mm-hmm. this, uh, this idea of the audience might be a bit of a red herring because I feel like there's very few people that um, are working in this field that would like, it would hurt them so badly that it would be, uh, you know, advisable to sort of avoid trying to experiment. Um, but Dave, to your point, what you said was that the thing that re-energized you with on, on your creative work generally was by finding the the thing that you could feel excited about. And in your case, it was drive. And I feel like that's a little bit of what I'm advising this person to do, which is like, to a certain extent, I think it's bad to generate work for the sake of it, but also sometimes that is the way to keep the wheel turning to a new yeah, place. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'd agree with that. Yeah. I, you know, I know a lot of artists that are like, well, I'm going to wait till I'm inspired and then nothing ever happens. And if yeah. this person is okay with just that not being a part of their life and that's fine. I mean, it's up to them. And, and some people, you know, it's healthier. Um, however, if there is something else that they can do, and this is where I was getting to when I was talking about the blogs or whatever, if there's Ooh. something else that interests them, then you know people who are paying attention to their work probably are interested in his point of view specifically as an artist, and they might be interested in other things that he also thinks was interesting. And so if he can find that other some other thing unrelated to the thing that got him so bummed, then you know. That's that's the path to finding a new thing is to just explore different sorts of things that he can also like different stories to tell or different formats to work in um, and just to have fun experimenting for a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I had a thought I want I, I, and I haven't thought this all the way through. So I'm going to just put this out there and you guys tell me what you think of it, because what Rob is asking is what should he be doing in the next three months? He's decided he's taken a break. What should he do or oh, not? That's do true. We didn't really address that creative okay. spark. Yeah, and and here's here's the thought that I had, and I just want to get your reaction on it because I I'll be honest with you, I I haven't really thought it all the way through. But my first reaction to that was, would if if I were advising you, uh, I would take you aside, and and your question is, what should I do? My answer is anything but comics. I would say do 
everything and anything that interests you, but don't do a single comic for three months. Just completely go cold turkey and do the things that bring you joy. Do the things that you want to do. Do the things that you can't do because you're working on a comic right now. Do all of those things. Uh, and, And at the end of three months, take a look at where you are and 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 which things that you are doing now bring you the most joy? In other words, it's that old follow your joy thing. Uh, and if that thing that brings you joy brings you back to comics, then great. And if that thing that brings you joy doesn't bring you back to comics, then that's acceptable too. Like if all of a sudden you f- find out, oh my gosh, I started fly fishing. And now I fly, I, I go out there and I'm fishing and I caught this trout that's, you know, 12 inches and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. Uh, and, and it's, and it's, and it's bringing me joy. Then that's the thing that you should do. And if, if somehow fly fishing, it means that you come back and now you're doing a comic about, uh, fly fishing, then that's good too. But I, but the, the last thing I want you to do and I and this is what I want to hear responses from you two on. The last thing I want this guy to do in three months is to pick up a drawing instrument and to do a, a comic of any sort. I think if he gets this point uh, where he's like, I just don't feel it anymore, I think you should stop and, and not feel uh, obligated to do another comic or a something comic or a kind of half comic. Just give yourself the luxury of going cold turkey. What do you think? Dave, why don't you jump on that one first? Um, yeah, no, I I agree with that, Brad. I think that would be healthiest for this guy in the long run. And I think his relationship with his artistic uh, self is, over the course of his life, is more important than any comic he might make today or in uh, you know over the next three months. So yeah. he needs to reevaluate just the sorts of things that he wants to do and the stories he wants to tell or not, or the other, or or the, you know, the fishing he wants to do or whatever it is. I think we fall into a trap of thinking that everything we make creatively has to be for consumption. Like we, no one can have a hobby without it being, you know, something they post online. Or even monetizable, you know, that's the worst version of that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's like, well, why would I go fishing if I can't, you know, sell t-shirts about, about my fishing (laughs) exploits, you know? (laughs) You're so, coming right to the heart of what I was getting at there. Yeah, it doesn't have to be for consumption. You know, and especially if, you know, if he, I, I have no, again, with the caveat that I don't know the sort of comic it is or the sort of plans he has for it career-wise. We all know, uh, however, that for most people, um, it's it's a tough road to, to to you know, do this as a career. And if it's something that he's having trouble with, then he shouldn't try and put that weight on it. And he should just enjoy um the sorts of things that he can do in life that uh, won't give him the same sort of heartbreak, right, I suppose. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I, so I would agree with you, Brad. Okay. So I, I yeah. both, I both agree with Brad, although I might differ on the timeline, but three months is fine. I would say three months is fine. Um, uh, but here's a, so two completely conflicting thoughts that I have about this kind of uh, creative burnout. And I will share them and then we'll talk about them and that'll be that. All right, so thought number one is Dave made a really good point about sometimes as artists and sometimes when you feel stuck, you get to this point where you're waiting for the perfect moment in quotes, you know, like 
You're waiting for yeah. inspiration to be so perfect and the iteration of the, the first comic that you've done in three months to be so perfect that it then becomes six months, nine months, 12 months. You know, Sometimes, to Dave's earlier point, just the process of iterating, just doing this one, even though it's imperfect, to get to the next one keeps the wheels moving and and you don't get stuck on waiting for the perfect you know it doesn't uh, perfect doesn't become the enemy of good in that regard so mm -hmm. that's thought number one is that sometimes when you take a step away jumping back in is really hard because you feel like that first one has to be you know uh, michelangelo's david you know and and that's not the case with comics um my second thought is this if you do take brad's advice and take three months off and then step back I really, really, really want to advise against immediately going back to the title that you were previously doing just because that's the default. Right. Um, you have to know that there's the passion there and the spark there as though it were the original concept coming to you for the first time. And if it's not, don't just go back to it because that's the default. Uh, and here's why. Both Brad and Dave and I all have individual and shared friends who keep going back to the concept that they first had in high school or college or when web comics oh, yeah. first started. And they just, they, they take a yeah. two year hiatus and then it's back to the time. I'm back again, everybody. I'm going back to the strip. And it's like, well, yeah. there was a reason why it burnt out and there, or you burnt out or the strip burnt out or the, the, the thing never really sparked because maybe the concept, maybe your approach to it, maybe the whole world of that thing wasn't really sparking joy. And so reevaluate yeah. why you're emotionally going back to the old well when you could be digging an entirely new well. And, and, uh, I think you will be happier at the end of Brad's three months period, um, to say to yourself, well, maybe I want to do an entirely different strip. Maybe that's the spark that will get you there. Don't necessarily default back to the old thing. Brad and Dave, what do you think about that? I guess this is what it keeps coming down to for me. And that is what's happening here is a relationship is ending. In, in the same oh, way yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the same way that if this was a, a a romantic relationship, okay, the relationship is ending, and the reason I want you to take three months off and not do any comics is because I don't want you to go and start up with the rebound relationship that is so uh, usual after somebody gets out of a long-term relationship, right? We've all seen friends get out of a relationship, and next thing you know, ah, he's out there with the rebound girl, right? Or, or she's out there with the rebound guy, or, or he's out there with the rebound guy. You, this can go a number of different ways. But we don't want them to go into a <laughs> rebound, right? We don't want to just say, oh, geez, now I'm out of this relationship. I'm going to get right into the next relationship. That's why I want you to take this time for yourself and realize that your next relationship doesn't have to be with the same type of partner. Your next relationship can be a completely new and different relationship. I want you to keep all of your options open and just enjoy being yourself and, and refining yourself over this next three months uh, because I, what I found out about relationships, I'm going to, I'm going to torture this metaphor to death. Right. I'm going some, what I found out about relationships is I couldn't be in a good relationship with anybody else until I figured out who I was first. Once I knew who I was, then I could be in a good relationship. And although I don't think that that's a complete parallel, I think there are elements that carry forth. I think you've got to, I think you've got to take a little bit of time and rediscover what it means to be you. Yeah. Dave, what are your thoughts on that? 
Well, I, I I think I might have a way to synthesize all of all of oh, what good, we've said great. Go for in, it. in 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 a, in a in a concrete actionable step, which is what the person had asked for. Yeah. So I agree with everything you just said, Brad. I agree that your relationships are tortured. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> um, and I think in some cases, when you get out of a relationship, to continue the metaphor, what you need is a one night stand, uh, just to sort of refocus yourself on in terms of like. Getting your getting out of the headspace of uh, of where you were. So I'm going to go with with Brad's advice and say you should take a break. I'm also going to go with Dave's advice and say you should not f- be afraid to experiment and iterate and and try and make something, but that you should not uh, go back to the thing you were doing because you feel like you have to. And I think the thing that people, in my experience, the pe- the thing that people fall into as a trap is thinking all right, time to make the next comic that'll be peanuts for the rest of my life. And let's sit down and just let's figure out how I'm going to spend the next decade of my life telling this epic story. And and the thing that I I rarely see people do is I'm going to tell a great short story. I'm going to tell a great eight page story or, you know, not even for any reason. I know that you guys are down on anthology. So it's like, I'm not even going to say that there's any purpose to it except to flex your writing muscles. And so if, if you go away from you know, the thing that's causing you distress and you come back and you want to do something that, you know, you, you're still interested in comics. It still excites you. Um, just to get your muscles limbered up again, give yourself the challenge of telling a one page story with all new characters and a a new world and a new setting. Give yourself a challenge of telling a four page story and, and put an end point on it such that you know that it's, it can't, continue forever it's only going to be so bad if it is bad and you'll move on to the next thing after that and i feel like that sort of thing can help develop our creative muscles in a a a more robust way than continuing to try and do one thing over and over and over and over and over so that's the challenge i would pose to this guy yeah david malky and the beauty of the one night stand approach to comics. Where were you when I was in my twenties? <laughs> he, he was making a move on other artists, Brad. That's that's where he was. Yeah, I was, I was trying. I was trying to do the math. I was eleven years old. I don't know. <laughs> no, but I like that idea because I often, uh, before we wrap this up, I often get too mercenary and say that the only reason you do a project is to is to make a career out of it, make money out of it. But Dave's right. In right. this situation, what you want is the one night stand that's basically art for art's sake mm-hmm. and that is everything that the indie comic scene is or the short story comic scene is or the one-off comic scene is which is that it's the artist exploring it's the artist having fun it's the artist uh reveling in just the 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 joy of creating and uh i think dave's right i think that's what's called for at the end of this three-month uh hiatus or or failing miserably and who cares yeah because it's so short and exactly. and the, uh, the uh you know the execution was so minimally painful that why not try to fail or try and fail who cares right. yeah exactly yeah yeah i mean i think i think push it to failure and see what you learn i mean that would be the sort of uh that would be like the 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 fail fast, you know, pivot sort of, you know, tech way to say it. And, and, and I would, I would want to say that this person should not feel obligated to post the results online, even if they don't feel happy with it, but just, you know, if they really care about nurturing their creative self, then they should figure out a way that they, they, they will fail and then just see what happens. And because who cares what, you know, the, the the worst thing that can happen is that you learn something about yourself and, and, and and your art has that additional experience to go. Right, right, right. Yep. And if the worst thing you do is learn something, that's a pretty good thing. David Malky, 
of wondermark.com. Uh, your Patreon is over there at patreon.com slash Malky. That's M-A-L-K-I. Thank you so much for joining us today on Comic Lab. Uh, gents, it's been my pleasure. I, uh, I And let me tell you, I love the show. And half the time when I listen, I'm, I, I think you guys are brilliant. The other half, I think you are teaching me something I didn't know. And the third half, I disagree with you with entirely every time. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be able to come and you know have my own two cents. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And that means all I have to do is say you've been listening to Comic Lab, the show about making comics and making a living from comics. Your hosts have been Brad Geiger, the editor of webcomics.com and the cartoonist of Evil Inc. at evil-comic.com. And Dave Kellett, co-director of Stripped and cartoonist of Sheldon at sheldoncomics.com and drive at drivecomic.com. And the Comic Lab theme song is used with permission from Andy Creighton at theworldrecord.net. And this episode and all episodes was edited by Matt Woodard of Woodsong Productions over at www.woodsong.media. Comic Lab is made possible by your support on patreon.com slash comic lab. So we're going to go ahead and say that twice. Patreon.com slash comic lab. I mean, how can you how can you forget all those important, memorable He-Man characters? You know that were beloved uh, on Saturday mornings. There was there was James. There was uh, there was Marcus. There is uh, Miss Miss Millicent. Remember her? She had sure. that hair Miss in the in Millicent? the bun. There was there was uh, uh, George the the owl. He was and he had they wore the helmet and then guys don't I'm not the only one who watched this show. Tell no, me. I mean I I still to this day think fondly of Ronaldo, the one with the hands. Remember he had hands. That was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. Yet I never thought that they could draw 19 hands on a single squirrel. <laughs> that's what that's when you knew Mattel was really kind of kind of jumping the shark. They're like, how about a guy that just has a lot of hands, Manny hands? He's just Manny hands. <laughs> we accidentally molded 55,000 extra hands in this last run. What can we do? <laughs> you know what would be fun? You know what would be fun is to give you a name of a character and to, for you to guess whether it's a, a a real master of the universe or whether I'm completely making this All up. Right, do you it. Ready? Do you have, do you have yeah, a yeah, way to I'm going to give you one. Bullshit or not, snout spout. Nope, real, real. <laughs> I, I, mean, I know that. I know they're that all going to be real. They're Brad, all going to be real. I know that one was real because I had that one on my desk at Mattel. Oh my god, really? Yeah, okay, how about how about Gwildor? Gwildor. Gwildor. Uh, no, that's from Lord of the Rings. Gwildor. David uh, Kellett. Uh, uh, Melky says no. You say? I want to say Gwildor was the elf dwarf creature. I'm going to say yes to that one. Oh, you're looking at the same page I'm looking I'm at. Not. He is. He's a, I'm not. He's a, he's a dwarf-like Thanurian, inventor of the cosmic oh, key. Thanurian. You didn't say he was a Thanurian. <laughs> you're a rube, David Melky, not knowing the Thanurians. <laughs> okay, one last one. Uh, one of He-Man's friends, 
He row. No, no, that did not exist, did it? Because if so, I'm retroactively yeah, they're mad. All re- they're all real. He just has the Wikipedia open. They're all real, oh, Dave. He row was the most powerful a wizard in the universe in the unreleased Powers of Grey Skull toy line. Yeah. So he should have been the master. <laughs> Dave Malky, I put this to you. How does a guy with a sword beat the most powerful wizard in the universe? There's no way you can get close. That's the he, that's the master of the universe. Compromise. <laughs> the answer is compromise. <laughs> I like, though, the idea that they might have gone down this naming road of like, all right, we got He-Man, Hero. What else we got? Up? Who's coming up with more in the brainstorming session here? We got uh... <laughs> Hemoglobin. It is interesting to think that th- there must have been a process of coming up with these names. I mean, and Dave, you know better than, it, than either of us how that how that works. But like yeah. somebody did have to make that decision that, that... Hero was the, the name to choose. Yeah. And, and then, you know, on that naming list, because I used to create a billion of those naming lists, one of the options was hedonistic. And that was <laughs> like, no, no, that's a scratch. <laughs> that was one that you put out there just so they could shoot it down and feel like they were being used. Yeah, you got to let the marketing team feel like they're intelligent. So you put hedonistic <laughs> yeah. on there and they're like, how about hero? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's also a good option. Great. All right, we're done. Oh, I just got it. <laughs> hero. <laughs> <laughs>